This podcast is presented as a general informational resource, and neither the sponsor nor the guests are rendering any medical advice. Any opinions or claims presented by the guests are their own. Welcome to The Patient Speak, healthcare innovations accelerating the patient journey. Featuring interviews with healthcare leaders, patient advocates, medical providers, and researchers. Here's your host, best-selling author, Mark Stinson. Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome back to our podcast, The Patients Speak, where we're combining the science and business innovation in healthcare with a patient voice and how we can accelerate the patient's journey from diagnosis to wellness. And I'm so happy today to have Katie Boitain, who's head of the Smell and Taste Association of North America. Katie, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. And this idea of smell and taste conditions has certainly got a lot more attention over the last few years. As we kickstart things here, let's just start with the topic of the podcast, and that is what we need to hear when the patients speak. What do you think the patients want us to listen to the most when it comes to their smell and taste? I think overall, what patients want people to understand is the enormous impact that this has on someone's day-to-day life, on their daily lives. Anosmia and other smell and taste conditions are invisible, so you can't see them, right? And so I feel that there seems to be a lack of empathy or a lack of understanding for how impactful these can be on people's lives. It impacts every area of your life. And I can speak from my own personal experience. I became anosmic back in 2009. So it's been about 13, is that 14 years for me now? Mm -hmm. Every single day, not having a sense of smell impacts my life in a meaningful way. One example that I can provide is nutrition. When you don't have a sense of smell, you typically don't have a sense of flavor anymore. So most people who don't have a sense of smell can still taste the five basic tastes. But for me personally, I have no flavor perception. So I choose and gravitate towards foods that might be a little bit less healthy than other options like chips, crackers, crunchy types of things are really great and do something for me. Things that are less exciting are like yogurt, lettuce, like those types of foods that might be a little bit more healthy for you don't really do much. And so nutrition is like a daily impact. So overall, just the ginormous impact that this can have on different areas of a person's life is what people want others to understand. And what about clinicians and their perception or reaction and approach to treating these conditions? Now, at first they sound that's mighty inconvenient and that's too bad, but you're really bringing up some true health implications. Yeah, I think for clinicians in particular, it would be useful for more education opportunities for these people to understand again, how impactful the conditions are And although currently there are no treatment options for smell and taste disorders, there aren't, there are very few, if any, treatment options, let me say it that way. Even though that's the case, you could still say, this is going to impact your nutrition. This is going to impact your mental health. This is going to impact you in social settings. We can't give you a pill or a treatment right now, but we want you to be aware of that and be mindful of that and take action steps towards managing those quality of life issues that you're going to have. When I became anosmic, I did not know anyone else who had anosmia for almost a decade. 
later where I met someone else in person who had an osmia. And when I went through my own journey of being going to the doctor to figure out what was wrong with me, at the end of that, I saw a primary care provider, I saw an ENT, and then I eventually saw a neurologist, and they all ruled out any fixes or cures or treatment options for me. But then I was just left and goodbye, good luck, have a nice life. And that is so isolating. And for me, I, my hope and our goal with Stiana is that no one has to feel that way, that you're like left at the end of your doctor's journey to just go on your own way and you have no support or resources. Your own personal experience must have been part of the drive and mission and motivation to create this organization or to at least lead it in this regard. What are you hoping to accomplish as an association to bring patients and clinicians in better communication? I think it's so important to just hear from the patients and how, how they're dealing with their own disorders and how it's impacting their lives and connecting them with those clinicians so that we can make strides towards treatment options and we can make strides towards more clinical trials and more collaboration between the two. It's always better when you're trying to come up with treatment or you're trying to come up with a clinical trial that you work with the people who are actually impacted by the disorder from the very beginning so that you aren't guessing what they need, but you're working directly with them to identify what they need. I agree. And I think for patients who are also facing these conditions, I just want to underscore that you're not alone part. I've heard that in so many other disease conditions where people haven't met other people and they think they are alone. But this mm -hmm. idea that others have gone or are going through this same journey is somewhat reassuring and comforting and gives hope to the patients mm -hmm. who continue to fight this condition. So thanks Absolutely. for sharing that. Yes. My guest has been Katie Boitang. She's with the Smell and Taste Association of North America. We've been talking about how to connect more patients to each other, more patients to clinicians, and more patients to clinical trials to really understand and advance our understanding and treatment of these conditions. I'm so happy today to have a guest, Howard Brown. He's a cancer survivor, two-time cancer survivor himself. He's also been a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, and he's the author of a new book called Shining Brightly. It's a memoir of resilience and hope. Howard, welcome to the program. Mark, thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. It's going to be a great conversation, and I'm sure we have a lot to learn from your experience. I think I just want to start off right straight up with the theme of this podcast. And tell us, as a cancer survivor and a patient yourself, what do we need to hear better when we listen to the patient speak? So I will tell you that a lot has changed. Having diagnosed with stage four T-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1989, right? No computers, no cell phones, and no internet. And then getting, again, 26 years later, a stage four metastatic colorectal cancer, first stage three, then stage four diagnosis. I lived in two different times. One was really analog and the other one was digital. And a lot has changed, but a lot has stayed the same. And But I will tell you, the positive part is that the patient voice is more relevant and more, more required than ever. It's really important that you're able to form a collaborative team around you when you get a cancer diagnosis. And I was able to kind of learn how to do that in the analog times in 1989, 1990, but I did it very effectively this time around. 
to be, be much more collaborative and much more involved in my diagnosis treatment and the survivorship plan. My experience is don't go at it alone. Don't do this alone. It's way too complex. Cancer diagnosis and treatment, it cuts you down emotionally, physically, financially, and in relationships. Take someone with you. And if you can't take someone with you, someone can be a mentor, can be assigned, a nurse navigator, any type of patient advocator. There, there's resources for you. But having someone with you is important because having that perspective to listen and hear what you're supposed to be hearing in the doctors, being able to keep notes, being able to record, being able to FaceTime, really important now that we can do that. I didn't have the first time, but I had my parents with me and we, we had to learn a lot. And I would say that was really important is understanding that one, it's not a death sentence necessarily. More people are living with cancer. I think the number's around 16 million and they're growing to 25 million in the next seven years. So people are living either in treatment or as survivors with cancer. And so that means things are getting better. My guest is Howard Brown. He's a two-time cancer survivor and entrepreneur himself and author of a terrific new book, Shining Brightly. Let's talk a minute about the book, Howard. What compelled you and motivated you to decide to put some of this story that you've been telling into print? So the funny thing is that I, my publisher, David Crom Frenich Publishing and readthespirit.com magazine, he was coming really to say goodbye to me. I was a stage four cancer patient and he didn't know if I was going to live. I didn't know if I was going to live. I had just basically been told that colon cancer had spread to my liver, my stomach lining and my bowel. And we had to do some Hail Mary chemo and Hail Mary surgery that was coming up. And he said, you want to leave a legacy? And we had bagels and coffee and we wrote on a napkin, Silicon Valley style, 10 chapter headings. I was going to say the best ideas are on a napkin. Got to sure. write it on a napkin, right? <laughs> he kept that napkin. He still has it. And I went home and told my wife, David Crumb wants to write a book with me and leave a legacy. Maybe a short book, right? And this frightened me. It was daunting. I'm not a writer. You got to know what you're good at. I'm a good speaker, but not a great writer. And Lisa said, oh my God, how are you going to do that? And I said, this is now October 19 of 2019. We're now communicating like we're doing on Zoom. We rolled into, into COVID and Zoom and these communications became lifelines for us. So I called David back and I said, David, if I can interview the most important people in my life, most influential people in my life, walk back my life, I said, I'll write a book with you. And that was my one demand. He said, only one demand. Oh my goodness. That's, but that's a big one. <laughs> We've never done that before. So he called me back and he said, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. It's going to take us a year and we're going to invite people to record them. And then those recordings will become transcripts and then become chapter drafts. And then we'll finally get a manuscript. And that's what we did. But it took three years. It didn't take one. Yes. And so we're in the middle of COVID doing it. And now we actually have a published book. And the book has got three tough cancer chapters, but it's really a book about resilience and living a life of hope and positive change in this world and shining that beautiful light that we all have to lift ourselves up, lift others, and then lift our communities up. And that's basically the sum of the book. And it's a great takeaway. It's inspirational. And it tells you how to get back up again when you get knocked down. And as cancer patients and our families and care for your partners, we get knocked down pretty hard. But you still, you got to get up out of bed every day and push further and keep going. It's okay to sleep in bed one day. You got to get back up the next day. Keep moving. Good encouragement. Seth, I think as we start off with our theme of the patient speak, what do you feel as a patient advocate that we, the industry, needs to hear the most from patients with genetic disease and rare diseases? Yeah, great, great question and happy to start us, start us off. I think when it comes to just genetic testing in general, it's going to vary depending on 
where the patient's at. I know it may sound cliche, but where they're at in their health odyssey or their health journey. Because in my instance, I saw my mom go through Huntington's disease for 17 years of my life, and it slowly deteriorated her both physically and mentally. And it was like watching someone on an island where the water continues to go up and up and there's nothing for you to do besides just watch. And so for me, I wanted to prepare my life of what that might look like. But what's interesting about Huntington's disease is that only about 10% of people actually go through genetic testing because of there's no treatment and there's no cure. And what's the point of knowing if you're going to end up getting sick? And I think that's very interesting because there's about 40,000 Americans with it, with another 200,000 plus at risk. Being in this 10% category is very interesting. But with genetic testing in general, I think it's important to have the right resources and support around because I didn't necessarily have a genetic counselor. I didn't have the ins and outs of what does it entail if I tested negative, right? And having a sister who's at risk and what is that going to make me feel like? Am I going to have survivor's guilt? And so genetic counseling is becoming more prevalent and very important to know about those next steps because you hear stories from time to time of how fortunately people get the results on the phone or they get it through their primary care. And then it's like, all right, now what do I do? And that was how I felt. What do I do next? Who do I tell? What support do I have? I'm very fortunate. I have some good friends who helped me, but not everyone may be in that same position that I was in when deciding this very personal decision. Let's explore this word community that I have heard it called the HD community. And in many other conditions, we have the arthritis community or we have the cancer community. But thinking about the Huntington disease community, what is the nature of that community? How would you describe it as a community? Great question. I think this community is definitely hungry for a treatment option. And I'm sure there's many that can say the same thing, but we're willing to participate in studies. We're willing to take that risk. Even those like myself who are gene positive, but aren't clinically diagnosed yet in this like pre-symptomatic stage. It's just, I think what the challenge is, is making sure that there is collaboration early enough in the drug development cycle. It's interesting because I've been involved now in, in Huntington's disease for over 13 years. And I think when even prior to that, when I first learned my mom had it, you'd hear, oh, there's a treatment right around the corner. We're getting closer. We're getting closer. And yes, there's a lot more companies working in the space, but I'm running out of time myself. And so I asked myself, what can we do to, to make sure we can change the message of, yes, we're hopeful and we're waiting, but we need to start acting with urgency. I'm so happy today to have as my guest, Yolanda Brunson Sarabo. She's a multiple myeloma patient and an author, blogger, and patient advocate. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure. You're just doing so much good work uh, on behalf of patients and support, and yet you still have time to run a business, uh, work with families of all kinds, including your own. Uh, what What is it that you feel from a life journey standpoint that we need to hear the most from patients like you? Oh, well, it's funny because I think a lot of us know that life is short. So that's kind of the model of how I live and move forward. 
I know that it's short. I know that there's hiccups along the way. And it's very important that I try to do as much that I can do while I'm here. That's a great point of view. So you authored a piece called Another Face of Multiple Myeloma, a reflection of your journey, but it probably uh, also reflects a lot of other patients' journeys. What inspired you to write this? I was inspired, again, because of my own story. And I know that when it comes to multiple myeloma, it's hugely affected by Black people. So I'm another face. I'm Black. (laughs) And I just felt that it was important to share my story, especially in the beginning, because I didn't really know if I'd be here in another 10 years or so. So the idea came probably a year after I was diagnosed to kind of make a go and start documenting my story and progress and all of that. Multiple myeloma is twice as affected with people of color, um, Black to be specific, who die from this, you know, if not caught early enough. So the book is my perspective on my journey. Mm -hmm. And despite these daunting potential outcomes, you've made it a point to maintain a hopefulness and an optimism and a sort of upbeat attitude. How is it that you're able to maintain that? And how do you share that with others? Oh, man, I don't even know. Sometimes I think it's the God in me because I really don't know where I get the energy to to do some of the things that I kind of put my hand in. And sometimes I agree to things that, hmm, should I really be doing that? (laughs) But again, it's important because part of the journey is it's important to be vocal. And anyone that knows me knows I hate public speaking, okay? However, being part of this patient leader experience, I have to. I have to be vocal. So to just share that with other patients who don't want to be perhaps in this spotlight as a patient advocate or a patient leader to at least be vocal with your doctors. That's so important. Well, we definitely want to touch on that. But I got to tell you, as someone looking from the outside in to watch your work, I would never know that you quote unquote fear public speaking, because you are very uh, vocal and out there. Uh, you you write, you uh, speak. Uh, I know you have featured on your own podcast and, and interviews with doctors. So when, when you're talking with physicians, and I think about the providers who may be listening to this show and want to tune in better to what their patients are thinking and feeling, what, what insights would you have from your experience on speaking up to your doctor? <laughs> It's so many layers, depending on who the patient is. Sometimes there's this pedestal that we have with doctors and patients. And a lot of time, patients do not want to step on any feet in terms of asking questions or acting as if they know better than a doctor. And that's that's not even the point. You know, the point is you're diagnosed with whatever chronic condition that you have. It's a team. So this is what I share with, you know, when I do my speaking, whatever, is it is a team. 
you you can't just sit and listen that okay you have this horrible disease okay and you have to do x y and z somewhere after you get over the shock of it all there has to be some type of questions and you cannot just let it go in your head you have to be vocal to ask how bad is this what stage am i in what does treatment entail you know, especially the stage, because sometimes the conversations can go and you don't even know if you're stage one, stage two, stage three. You just don't know. You just hear, oh, you have to start treatment right away. So it's those simple questions that are not simple. They're very important. And, you know, just, just to know that there is this partnership between you and your healthcare provider. I listened to one of your interviews with a doctor where you asked the question, how do you even know if the side effect is severe or just a nuisance? And even the doctor was surprised by that question. You know, it's like, wow, I, I never thought about how to explain that before. Is that an example, I guess, of many questions that the patient might have for their doctor that uh, they might think, well, I can't really ask that. That would be a silly question. But it's not silly at all, is it? It is not at all. Like it's the small details. And, you know, I think when we're talking about any type of chronic condition, it's the details of everything, you know, whether your hair falling out, whether you're losing weight or gaining weight or your, your toes tingle is those little things where you have some patients who feel that, oh, it's very minute. I won't bring it up because the doctor will think I'm silly or, or what have you. You're not silly at all. Again, this is being vocal. And sometimes you may feel, for those who are vocal like me, you may feel that you are a pain in the butt. It's fine. Well, it's also <laughs> it your is, life. <laughs> exactly. You know what I'm saying? Like, what are you waiting for to ask these very important questions? Just go for it. And we also sometimes overlook the emotional side, you know, the true quality of life questions. And uh, you know, we interviewed one doctor who was talking about how to uh, express more empathy to the patient. How do you find in that physician-patient encounter the time and the ability to express the true emotional impact on your life? Sometimes I think it depends on how long you've been dealing with the doctor, because it does depend on, I guess, your comfort level. You know, just as I mentioned, being vocal. If you are having a conversation with your doctor and they're not really replying or they're not showing that type of empathy, that kind of comes into play of perhaps getting a second opinion. You know, what are the pros and cons? If this is a good doctor, do you want to rock the boat as seeking other care? It's like a whole mixture of what to do, but to do something, not just kind of be in still waters thinking that this empathy will appear and it just may not. Some doctors just don't have it in them to show that side, but they may be very good doctors. So it, it depends. What is it that you want? Do you want that empathetic doctor, which I think we all do, or do you want that doctor who is going to help get your cancer, your disease maintained, even mm -hmm. though they may be a jerk? 
<laughs> so it depends. They have a job to do as well. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yolanda, the sponsors of this podcast are also interested in how to gain more uh, awareness and more participation in clinical trials. And your experience in the group and network that you work with, what is the interest and the feelings about being part of clinical studies for new treatments? Well, this I'll say, if people don't know about it, then they're not going to approach the idea. When I was diagnosed, there were like so many different types of information that was thrown my way by me researching to get that information. However, a lot of people, including myself, until I was diagnosed, didn't know about clinical trials. And even the information that I got during that time about clinical trials, it really wasn't expressed and explained what is a clinical trial. So you hear the term, but you don't really know what that entails. And you don't really realize as a Black person how important your voice is in this space. Yolanda, what a great conversation. I love the advice that you've shared with the companies on listening better. But I also want to turn back to the patient's point of view here. You know, not everybody can be the public speaker and blogger and interviewer that you are, but we can all elevate our voice. What insights from your experience would you have for other patients like you on raising their voice? on getting out there, whether it's one-on-one with their doctor, better communication with their family, sharing their stories with support groups. What else could patients do to be more vocal about their feelings and their experiences? Everyone isn't that public speaker. It's so many different personalities. You really can't batch everybody all together. But I would say it's something where you maybe write down questions that you may have. If it's to start there, write down, okay, well, I don't know what um, asymptomatic myeloma, I don't understand what is that, the doctor said it. If it's something for you just to write down the term and then take a breather, come back, go to your, when you have your next appointment, maybe again, be vocal. What is asymptomatic again? Or use the nurses. Sometimes I've found that the nurses have been better guides to explaining certain parts of the disease better than the doctors. So just use those people who are there on your health team to your benefit. Very helpful. Well, my guest has been Yolanda Brunson-Sarabo. Leave us with one thought, uh, Yolanda. If you had a chance to just talk one-on-one with maybe it's a provider, maybe it's a clinical researcher, somebody doing the clinical trials, what would you say we need to hear the most from patients like you? I want to say that we're out out here (laughs) and that is a variety of us. And we just need them to find us. Very good. We'll keep looking because we need to connect with more people like you. You're doing great work. Thanks for being with us, Yolanda. Thank you for having me. I'm Mark Stinson. Come back again next time. We'll continue these conversations with healthcare leaders from the companies, from the health systems, and from patient advocacy groups on what we need to listen when the patients speak. Thanks for listening to The Patient Speak, healthcare innovations accelerating the patient journey with Mark Stinson. You can listen to our show on any of your favorite podcast apps, 
Subscribe now so you won't miss an episode of The Patients Speak. This podcast is produced by BSB Media. We also host another show you might enjoy, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. It's a top-rated podcast featuring interviews with creators around the world. We help you gain the confidence and connections to launch your creative work out into the world. Look for Unlocking Your World of Creativity on your favorite podcast app.